Welcome to our podcast. This teaching is a part of our Sunday morning service at Garden City Church in Southern California. For more information about our church, visit GardenCityChurch.co. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. We have three verses this morning. If you guys are four verses, rather, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word as we... uh, give reverence to him and honor to him as we focus in on what he has for us this morning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. You guys can have a seat. It's funny, maybe it's not funny, but it's, um, it's apparent when you are studying scripture, when you're looking at particular things, and then you see it come to light in your own life, and you see the fruition of that, whether it's a test or whether it's a confirmation of something, and uh, this last week, which I think every week I get something that pertains to something that I'm about to teach on, so when I get to that marriage series, I know that I'm going to have to really pay attention to my wife and to things going on with my kids and stuff like that because God always seems to give me something that I am about to teach on to also live in my own life. And that's essentially what Jesus is trying to get at. He wants us to understand that as we look at Scripture, it's not just something like, oh, yeah, that's really good. I'm going to underline it and highlight it with all my different colors. You know, yellow means like something that Jesus said, and blue is something from the Spirit. And there's a system, I'm serious, out there, a highlighting system of like particular colors in particular things. And so as we look at Scripture, it's always nice, is the word maybe, to use as a way of God confirming something going on in your life. And so for this week, it was this practice of Jesus telling them that he didn't come to abolish the law that they had, but to fulfill the law, that he was the fulfillment, that he was the embodiment of what they had been doing from what we know as the Old Testament for so long. And so he says that not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so in that we have this reality of Jesus coming to the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, and trying to get them to understand that their legalism has been touted against the other people, and they've been pressured and they've been um, honing in on what culture and history has said from the previous generations, and then to make that factual in the current generation. And so that's why I've titled my sermon this morning, From Legalism to Lordship, because I know that we can so often project what we believe as fact, which is really just our opinion or our way of believing how the world should be structured and ordered, and we can project that onto the other people around us, particularly with my driving I believe that I am a very good driver. Doesn't everyone, right? 
I haven't had an accident since I was 18, and that one wasn't even my fault, okay? Um, I drive really well. I'm a very calculated person in life. I'm very calculated. And so I, I'm waiting at a red light, knowing that as the intersection is being crossed in the opposite direction, that I'm looking over to see when their light turns yellow because I know I'm next. But you also have to remember that left lanes turn before you go straight. On some of them, not all of them. And so this driving calculation that I've done in my mind has made me a very efficient driver. And, we, and my wife laughs, and we all say, I am the best driver in the world or on the road. And sometimes now, because of your insurance, you get rewarded for that, which is great, and that's cool. But I think if I were able to project anything on anyone as a betterment into society, I think it would be my driving if everyone drived like I did, if everyone drove calculated like I do, we wouldn't have all these traffic issues on the 91 freeway and the 215 and the 10, and, and now it's just everywhere. And Beaumont is blaming everyone moving in for the infrastructure of all the traffic when it's like, we'll just build some signals and it'll all be okay. We project these ideas onto others because we believe that we have mastered something and so therefore we're able to project into society and into culture the things that we believe we've mastered. Tweeting is another thing. You, you can tweet things that are really good and push them out really well because Twitter for the, the, uh, the Christian or the, the pastor, the spiritual leader, Twitter is the place you go to say the things that are on your mind that are really good as pastors, okay? That's not for everyone, but pastors are like, well, this is where I can get like the really good, right? The, the tweetable pastor is what it's been called before. And then what's funny is that, and I've been guilty of this too, is you take your tweet from your Twitter and you screenshot that and you upload it to Instagram because it does better sometimes. It just, it feels more legitimate. And so we project these things onto society and into culture, believing that what I have mastered must be mastered in the same way by everyone else, I learned very early on in my leadership skills that I was a terrible boss at first. I've gotten better, I promise you. But what I realized through the process is that I wanted things done a particular way. I wanted a design done, certain colors and certain fonts and things like that. And so I would project what I wanted rather than letting the gifts of someone else do what they believed they were gifted with. And so I limited their ability to do what they believed they were adding into society as a gift and into the church as well. And those are things that we can continue to project. And so what I see in myself at times is the good that I can add to society, but also hoping that there is a place in life where because of my comparison to other people, I make myself look better than I actually am. Have you done that before? I'm sure you have. And I hope you're here today to, to uh, be convicted and to confess of that, because we've all done that. We magnify ourselves into this place where we are projected to be better than we actually are. But then we also have this reality of sulking in our self-made pity that makes society look at me and wonder like, oh, what, is everything okay? And you're like, as, as soon as someone hears that, they just get into this whole thing of like, woe is me, my life is terrible, I have all these things going on. And so what I see in myself is magnified compared to what I see in others. Why don't I have nice things like them why am I suffering so much? Why don't I make as much money as they do? Why don't I have those things? Why do I seem to struggle through the sin? And the sulking in the self-made pity is also seeking to justify myself as greater than I actually am. Well, I'm glad I don't sin like that guy. I'm glad that my kids don't act like that. 
I'm glad I'm a better parent than that. I'm glad I didn't vote for that. And so we view the world through this lens that puts self at the center of all things. And you say, Pastor, how could you say that? When we view the people around us in this light, it causes us to make ourselves look better than we actually are while also desperate for the things of others. We remain in this cultural limbo of not being thankful for what we already have and at the same time not applauding the joy that others are experiencing. Because when we see the joy in someone else, we think, why don't I have that joy? Rather than like, wow, I'm, I'm so thankful for whatever joy they've been given that they can experience that. We, re, we remain in this cultural limbo. I meet twice a month with what is called a, a coach through this church planting network that we've gone through. And I have the joy of being able to be coached by the coach who coaches all the other coaches in that organization. But what he has continually told me is that comparison is the thief of joy. And I think even better yet, also comparison is the thief of contentment. Because when we start to compare, when we start to look at what I don't have and see what someone else has, or when I think I should have something that someone else has, we continue to compare ourselves and it becomes the thief of our contentment. The contentment of what I already have as enough and the contentment of experiencing the graces of God in my own life. Christians are supposed to be some of the happiest people. After all, not only do we experience the weight of our sin lifted, but we also read so often about the joy of the Lord as our strength and the joy that we experience in his presence, and yet we still find room for discontentment. And then here's the kicker. What God intends to set us free with becomes the barometer we use to survey the lives of others around us as a form of legalism and self-righteousness. I bring to you this idea that the reason for the Pharisees, these men who began as well-meaning keepers of the law, have become the disdain of the New Testament. What started as law became a response of legalism rather than a response of lordship. The law from the Old Testament narrative sheds light on what God intended it to do. Have you ever asked yourself that question when you're in the book of Leviticus? Like, why did they not eat shellfish? Why didn't they have lobster? Like, in all our restaurants, the most expensive menu item is the seafood portion of that. And we think about all these different laws and all these different regulations that they had to live by. Like, what was God intending to do with that, the law? was given as the means of binding Israel to their God in an agreement and into a covenant. Obedience to the law of God was an expression of trust in God, and only those who offered God their obedience were really his people. And so the law was intended to become a source of obedience that led to a deeper love for God and for others. But it became more about personal legalism than divine lordship. We see the Ten Commandments. Those were the first two tablets given to Moses on Mount Sinai. This became the basis of every legal matter in Israel. We have the law of Moses, which related to the thousands of lesser commandments that the local judges referred to often. And so later on, Moses and the prophets became interrelated. And so this term, the law and the prophets, just as Jesus said in Matthew 5, became this familiar saying throughout the nation. 
This covered the entire period of time from Moses to Malachi. And since we know printing presses were not invented at this time, every detail was preserved for posterity. The various commandments either had to be written by hand or presented orally generation after generation. The scribes were responsible for the preservation of the records, but as years went on, they added all kinds of ideas. They started to question its interpretation, some of which were ludicrous. This became the prevailing standard of law throughout Israel, and the thousands of demands made upon the people were so burdensome that religion became obnoxious. Does that sound familiar to you today? So many different ways in which you are to worship, so many different ways in which you need to listen to expositional teaching verse by verse, and Pentecostal churches are of the devil, and they worship weird and, and speak weird tongues, and evangelicals are the, the true gospel-centered churches, and you have all these other different, Catholics aren't going to heaven and things like that. It's like those ideas are not found anywhere in Scripture. If they are, please point me to it. But... Religion has become so obnoxious because what we have made as law has turned into legalism. What God intended as a liberation has turned into a legalism, like, oh, well, you can't worship that way because it's weird and God doesn't honor weirdness. Well, the way that in which they interpret this in particular, of course, when it becomes heresy, like that is an issue in and of itself. But more than heresy, what we see as religion being burdensome today is not heresy, but hypocrites. Ancient records would reveal that scribes and lawyers would argue for days about the legality of a man going out on the Sabbath, listen, wearing artificial teeth. Whether it was a sin if a tailor went out with a needle in his robe in case he needed to stitch up someone else's. The weightier matters of the real law were obscured by the stupidity of those who professed to be its interpreters. And so generation after generation, what was established as the law and the prophets became the law and the prophets and the scribes. They started to interpret, well, does this actually represent this correctly? And do we have to live according to this law? And so the, these interpretations started to get clouded and things started to become more legalistic in its approach. And this is the teaching that Christ opposed. And yet the Pharisees and the scribes accused Jesus of violating the law when in fact they were only protecting the ideas they had created. Isn't that how we treat Jesus too? We can easily get offended by others because what we want to protect is being violated. It may not even be true, but because we created it, we find ourselves defending it. We can often make ideologies into theology. And so the law was severed from its foundation of faith. It failed to stress the dependence on the Spirit of God, and the commandments became a job description for earning salvation rather than obedience. We know from Jesus' life and ministry that if the foundation is first not solidified on the rock, it will get washed away rather quickly. We know if our dependence doesn't go beyond ourselves, we only have this relativism that makes me the authority and anyone outside of me has no claim on how I can live my life, which means there are no, no consequences to how I live and the decisions that I make. 
And so if I try to earn my salvation on my way to heaven, I will only get to the gates and no further. It causes the cross of Christ to become null and void of its power. The tomb would still hold the body of Christ these thousands of years later. So what was the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of Moses establishing the Ten Commandments and then from there also purposing from the law and the prophets to establish this said law? Number one, the purpose of the law was to see that love fulfills the law. Not legalism, not anything else outside of love. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10 tell us, Owe no one, owe no one anything except to love each other, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Number two, the fruit of faith produced is love. 1 Corinthians 13, known as the love chapter of the Bible describes that even though that there is faith and love, that there is a greater thing, which is love itself. That there is beyond love, nothing greater than love. Number three, that the law fulfilled is by faith and not by works. Christ has fulfilled this sacrificial portion of the law, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, tells us that. But what's also interesting, because other people have brought up, well, why are we allowed to now eat shellfish and things like that? Mark seven nineteen tells us, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. So when Jesus says that he does not come to abolish the law, meaning he did not come to invalidate or to do away with it, he came as the true and complete significance of what the law is intended to do. So where the law fell short, Christ followed through. He founded a new people, not a particular ethnicity or sex, but a people who are obedient to his word. Because we understand that obeying God is not the great test in life, obeying God is not his way of seeing how committed we are to the process, but that through obedience, we find what is best for us. The metaphor has often been used to describe what God truly wants for our life with the idea of offense. Many can view the fence as a means of keeping you away from the rest of the world, but the fence seems to be more of a guard against the world coming into your property. What can often be viewed as a limitation, the fence, must be viewed as a liberation. And often we think that having ultimate freedom allows me to do what I want when the freedom to do what I want has the potential, has the potential of also ruining my life. You see, we were born for community. We were not born into isolation or into individualism. We were born into a family. We were not born for autonomy Because you know that when you surrender your life to Jesus, you are also surrendering into a community. It was at that point when Finley was first diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was one years old. And it was in that moment where I wanted to isolate. I wanted to become autonomous. I wanted nothing to do with any other texts coming through my phone, praying for you, brother. I'm like, that's great, like, cool. Yeah, pray for me, but you don't even get it. You don't understand what's going on. You don't know what it's like. 
And you get into this whole mindset of like, you don't get it. You don't, and you know, you, you send a text back like, thank you, or you like it or whatever, but you don't understand it at times. And so you become isolated and you become someone who wants to work autonomous, but it was the community that didn't let us become isolated. It was the community that said, we're gonna come alongside you no matter what. It was the community who said, you can become isolated as much as you want, but we know where you live, we know where you work. And it was like, are you trying, like, is this like a hit on me or something? Like, you know the things about me. And so it is when it comes to our relationship to Christ that we are not built for autonomy And I think that's the bigger thing that our culture is having to define in the church is how do I do life not autonomously but with other people? Because being a Christian isolated, so much easier. It's so much easier to be an isolated Christian. Better yet, it's even better to be isolated with other people who are like-minded Christians like me rather than talking to someone who has differing opinions than I do. And so it's from that place that we must remember that we were born into communities. We were born into times and places, and everything that makes up who we are comes from other people. In other words, our particularities come from somewhere outside ourselves. As Christians, we understand that God determines the things that make up the individual self. And it can be burdensome to believe in yourself. Because you're having to constantly question what you believe is if it's true or not. My youngest daughter, she's into space and astronauts and rockets and all kinds of things, which praise God, like, I think I gave that to her, which is part of the whole community and the places and things. Because I grew up enjoying those things too. But she comes to me the other day and she says, Dad, I know everything about science. I know everything about rocket ships. I know everything about astronauts. I'm like, really? Well, how far are we from the sun? She's like, well, a couple, couple miles. You know, like, she doesn't have this understanding fully. And, of course, me, being the smart Alec that I am, has to question my five-year-old on whether or not she knows it or not, which I, when I know she doesn't. But you see, we can become pharisaical and legalistic in our reaction to others and in our work towards God. What we see in Scripture, we can actually add to it and say, well, this is actually how you're supposed to live this out. You think about alcohol. That's a big issue inside the church. We haven't really talked about it. I grew up in a culture where alcohol was, was deemed as sinful. It was never said that it is a sin to drink alcohol. And in fact, Scripture doesn't even say that. Let's be honest about that. Scripture doesn't say don't drink. It says don't be filled with other spirits. It says don't be drunk with wine. It doesn't say you can't drink. So the church has made it, you know, they've done a whole Q&A session on, is alcohol a sin? And I'm sure if you type in something on YouTube, you're going to get some crazy weird apologist who's like, well, let me break down the, uh, the science of alcohol actually being sin. It's like, Jesus never said that, okay? No, I'm not condoning or I'm not saying like, yeah, let's all go and drink and we're going to turn our, our grape juice into wine, which maybe we need to vote on that. But the whole point of alcohol itself is that it's not a sin, It is not a sin. It is something that Jesus himself drank. And some that I've heard before have said, well, the wine that Jesus drank wasn't as uh, full of alcoholic content as we have today. I don't care. Like, that doesn't matter to me. Because at that point, your view of what Jesus is supposed to be as lordship has put you up there, and it gives you this legalistic, pharisaical view of this in particular. Entertainment is another thing. Well, I watch Hulu. Well, like, why? 
I have HBO Max. Like, oh, you have, well, HBO, that's the bad one. Like, you're not, you're not supposed to watch that one. Growing up, MTV was blocked on my, on my, uh, on my cable growing up. Yeah, we had cable. We were blessed. It was great. Um, we also somehow hacked into my neighbor's cable. I'm not sure how that happened, but it worked. And so we didn't do it. The, the company did it, and so they messed up, and it was great. We got to bl- be blessed by it. But MTV was blocked. I'm like, well, why is MTV blocked? And my parents, you know, went into the whole thing about the entertainment and things like that. And yes, there are things that you shouldn't be watching that MTV had on there, but I liked MTV Cribs. I wanted to see the big houses I didn't have and the houses full of Gatorade and their, like, giant refrigerators just full of Gatorade. I wanted a house like that. And so we view entertainment like, well, can a Christian listen to secular music? Again, you'll find an apologist on YouTube. Well, here's why you can't listen to secular music, because Satan used to be an angel, and he was the angel over music, and he's using music to diffuse everything Christianity. Like, okay, yeah, I understand that. There are levels of that. But there are also secular songs that I enjoy, and I don't think it's going to keep me out of the kingdom of heaven. Now, if there's something that is blatantly non-Christian, if that's even word, like, there's no such thing as Christian music. Like, Christians, Christian music's not saved, okay? Like, it can't be saved in that way. Secular music, the same way. So entertainment, yes, there are these defining lines that are very thin and very close and very careful, and you have to wonder, like, well, can I do these things? That's where the discernment of the Spirit allows you to see whether or not it is something you can participate in. Dare I get into this third one about politics? Maybe we should save that for a podcast or a live video at some point because we use This one has been hard for me to talk about because we use politics and religion as a way of saying that a particular side is better than another. That we use politics as a means to which we say that you cannot be one party while being a Christian at the same time. I'm not going to get into that with you. You pray, you allow the Lord to draw your heart to where that is. But it's become a fine line in the church And people are starting to choose their churches based on how the policies and politics of a particular party play out in the world. I will say this, this last week, a bill came through the house, not my house, but a bill came to the house, and they voted, Democrats and Republicans, on lowering the cost of insulin from $300 to $30 a month. Now, I'm only saying this because I've done partial research on this, but I also saw live the voting that was taking place. And the Republicans voted against that, saying that they were going to lose money out on this whole reality, while every Democrat voted yes to lower the cost of insulin. If you know insulin for me, it's the thing that keeps me alive. It's the thing that keeps my daughter alive. So when you enter politics into religion, you start to question a lot of things, fine lines at that point. In fact, insulin is the third most expensive liquid on the planet. Why is something that is so apparently good for someone who will keep you alive and kill you if you don't have it? Something that we can allow politics to play a part in. You see, when we become enraged enraged by what others are doing or what they're tweeting or what they're not tweeting or what they aren't doing, how they are voting and how they're not voting, we can take the very same philosophy the scribes used as a front of defending the law, justice for all, equality for everyone. This is, this is how we get into this lane of bringing people to Christ when they were really defending just their opinion. 
You see, we've replaced the proclamation of Christ with an easy-to-listen-to legalism of do more and try harder. It's the difference of what spiritual disciplines can do for the life of the believer. Because there's a difference between legalism and discipline. The difference is motivation. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is Christ-centered. The legalistic person says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God or with people, while the disciplined person says, I will do this thing because God first loved me and I am right with God in Christ. You see, I don't want our daily motivation coming from the news. I want our daily motivation coming from the good news. Humans tend to be unreliable and we fail every day. But Christianity helps us face the truth about ourselves. That there's good that I don't do and evil that I do, to paraphrase the Apostle Paul. And if our only ethic is to believe in ourselves, we're left in a truly hopeless position. So not only do we need other people and that community, but of course, more importantly, friends, we need Jesus. And not the Jesus of our legalism or the Jesus of our opinion, but the Jesus who deserves our lordship. These religious leaders were teaching the law and they were living the law, but they were living their own version of the law. You see, the pandemic has done a lot to expose particular things inside of the church that must be held accountable. Since the pandemic, we've seen this strain of political rightness and wrongness inside the church and people choosing churches based on their political policy rather than how they choose to follow Jesus. Another thing that has come through a wave of things as well are all these pastors that are being exposed for the hypocrisy that has been there all along. And so when we get back after Easter, Jesus will say, you've heard it said before, but I tell you. It's about this whole idea of hypocrisy. It's the wrecking ball of our culture. It creates havoc on the souls that are in its path. It creates disoriented saints as they become disheveled in the rubble, in the wake of legalistic views and opinions. And it seems that the more prominent the leader, the louder the outcry. The weightier the sin, the larger the audience. Because we think how big an, an audience can be or how big an organization or church can be, clearly they must be doing something right because they've got tens of thousands of people showing up week in and week out, when in reality a lot of those are the ones who are finding the hypocrisy inside of the church. That's why this hypocrisy is what has caused this wave of deconstruction that ultimately leads to deconversion. Now see, if you're needing to deconstruct for some reason... I I understand that. There was a a moment where I needed to deconstruct as well. But let it be so that you are reconstructing what has been faulty for some time. Matthew 23, Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and so do and observe whatever they tell you. But they don't do the works themselves for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Jesus continues in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, 
For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? You see, these Pharisees were accepted by society as the ultimate truth. They were the final authority on all things God and man. Why do you think people are leaving the church today? Because the scribes and Pharisees of our day are, are seen as the ultimate truth. They are seen as the final authority on all things God and man. And when they go and do something they shouldn't, people leave the church. But then Jesus comes on the scene and he destroys everything they tried to build up, of course they're going to be offended. Because if Jesus is coming to tear down something that you've spent so much time building up, wouldn't you get offended too? Wouldn't you be upset with whoever's trying to do that? I know when my kids are trying to build Legos, and one of them comes by and they try to knock something down, they're not like, oh, good job. It's like, why the heck did you do that? And then they start beating each other and they start getting into these things. They get offended by something they've built up because they put so much work and effort into it. And what's funny, maybe it's not funny, I don't know, but when someone tries to destroy a personal opinion of mine that I've made fact, that I've convinced myself, Scripture says, I get offended too. Jesus was accused of breaking down the Lego building that the Pharisees and the scribes have built. And Jesus is like, fool, I made that thing. I'm the one who brought you the law. Jesus was accused of abolishing the Torah, but he was willingly ridiculed because of this new creed that was introduced when a lawyer, probably someone who was talking to scribes and Pharisees, had said, well, let's go ask this Jesus guy. Hey, what is the greatest commandment? That way they could probably find their own opinions and not be offended by their own legalism. Jesus said, well, it's actually just two simple things. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What legalism does is it causes us to love God as best as we can while diminishing love for others. What they wanted to see fulfilled through obedience of the people or in adherence to their generational opinion was coming to fruition in Jesus. But they didn't like that. What they were looking for in a Messiah was Jesus, but when he described his purpose of fulfilling the law and not abolishing the law, he came off as a lunatic. And so it is what we seek for society to be and to look like is not in a policy or politician. It's not in a movement. It's not in an opinion. Jesus said it himself until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Iota just simply means, or not one iota, simply means not even the slightest amount. This refers to the iota, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, other Hebrew scholars would say that it's not even important for that piece of a letter to be in the alphabet. 
And yet Jesus is saying not even the smallest little detail is outside of my knowledge and outside of my will. It's a hard thing to swallow at times. Every little detail of your life, every little detail of the world's structures are all governed by God. And we understand we cannot perfectly fulfill the law, but there is one who did. We conjure up this self-inflicted anxiety by turning to following God into legalism rather than lordship. But we understand that all details matter to God and he is involved in all of them. You look at the life of Jeremiah. He was called by God to be a prophet to the nations. In Jeremiah's ministry, throughout all of it, he didn't have a single person convert to following God. Not a single person. And so society and culture would say, well, he was unsuccessful in the church. He didn't do anything powerful. Jeremiah's life is a reminder to us that success is not measured by numbers. Hannah, when she was not able to have kids, and one of her friends turned into an enemy because she started having so many kids, and she kept putting it in Hannah's face like, wow, look how God has blessed me, Hannah. Look at all these kids I'm having. Why hasn't God blessed you? Clearly, you've done something wrong to deserve this infliction from the Lord. But Hannah just went to the Lord and cried out in her grief. And she had said, if I dedicate my son to the Lord, I will give him to you. I will give him to the temple. And he served his entire life honoring the Lord. The Lord knows your grief. He knows the details. He knows the intricacies of all the different things that are going on in your life. And then we have Gideon. Gideon was called to an army to be the commander of 10,000 men, more than 10,000 men. And it was in that place where Gideon questioned the call of God in his life. And Gideon was like, hey, God, can you give me some sort of sign? Like, that'd be really cool, like, just so I know, like, that I know that I know that you're going to do something. So he's like, all right, well, leave a, a fleece out on the tree stump. And if there's dew on it in the morning, that's a sign that I am with you and that this is a confirmation. So Gideon's like, all right, cool, God. Like, thanks for, like, having my back, you know? And he wakes up the next morning. He sees dew on the fleece. And he's like, okay, all right, cool. God, can you just do it one more time? Can you just, like, make the fleece wet again? And God's like, you moron, I would love to, right? That's just kind of what happens in life. You see, God knows what he calls you to. It's scary. It's embarrassing at times. But if God has called you to it, he will see you through it. Righteousness, the reason Jesus brings up the excess of righteousness beyond the Pharisees is because righteousness stopped with the Pharisees. They were the end-all, be-all. It did not go beyond them. They were it. And sometimes I find myself as the moral compass for others, but not myself but only by how I project how others should live, not by how I should. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the road, and there are few who find it. God has been viewed as cruel for his narrow-mindedness because he is always easiest to blame. But we must consider it, it a grace that the Lord has given us a guide for our lives. Oh, narrow is that road? Oh, shoot, okay, how do I get on that narrow road? Proverbs 4 tells you to not be distracted by the left or the right. If that's political, then you can view that interpretly. However, the point is, Jesus in his grace 
says that the broad road is what leads to destruction, but he also says that the narrow road is the one that you can find. It's there. You see, my desire is, to, is not to live by a conservative ethic. I desire to live by a messianic ethic. What we have done is transformed our moral ethic into the messianic ethic. We keep ourselves from being offended by God and by others, so we use this safety net of Christianity and think like, well, I'm good. I don't need to do anything further. I come to church on Sundays. I get my daily or my, my weekly dose of God, and I just kind of go on throughout my week and just kind of live as best as I can. You see, we need to move away from legalism and into lordship. We need to move away from a behavior that feels a particular way when we need to look at the reality of what it means to have a messianic ethic. Again, comparison is the thief of contentment. And so if I continue to view what others are doing, whether it's good and I wish I had that or it's bad and why aren't they more like me, comparison is the thief of contentment. You see, the Pharisees became jealous of the very God they were supposed to serve. They became jealous of Jesus. And he's like, bro, like, don't you know, like, I'm here to do the Father's will. Like, I am the fulfillment of the law. I'm not trying to break things down. I'm not blaspheming. And yet it was because of the blasphemy that Jesus was crucified on a cross. It was enough that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees who were supposed to be defenders of, of the law ended up using the law against the one who created it to crucify him. Friends, if there's anything that we can learn today, it is to remind ourselves that comparison is the thief of contentment or the thief of joy, but that even in my ethics, even in my observance of the world, oh God, why is this happening? God's like, because I'm allowing it. God, are you not aware of how like the election went? Yeah, I'm very aware of how that went. And I'm exposing a lot of things right now. God is up to something, friends. And he does not tell us that we need to look to the world necessarily for every little thing to make us wonder if he's coming back soon. Volcano's about to erupt. Oh, the Bible talks about volcanoes erupting. Jesus is coming back. Like, okay, cool. Like, yes, maybe. But guess what? We will serve God better and we will enjoy our lives more if we focus on serving him by loving him and loving others. That's the way into the kingdom, friends. In fact, Jesus says that the least in the kingdom are those who are teaching this but not living it out themselves. This least and this greatest reality is actually because all things are in God's kingdom, right? The world and everything in it, God's kingdom. He is saying that the least in the kingdom are in fact those who don't enter the kingdom. But the greater ones are the ones who enter the kingdom. And the greater ones are those whose righteousness exceeds themselves and anyone else but God. And so it is in our lordship to Christ that we would move away from an ethic that wonders, God, what are you doing into God, whatever you are doing, I'm on board for because you, de you deserve the, the honor and the glory and the fame for all generations. Whether he comes back today, could be, probably not, or he's going to, as he says in 2 Peter 3, willing that none should perish but that all reach repentance. God wants to see more and more people saved into his kingdom. And the longer this world has to be in order and in effect, the more people get to know about Christ. 
Through our efforts as following Jesus, our efforts are to love God and love others and call others to do the same. That is our opportunity this morning, not to just get our dose of God this day, but to take what we have learned, to know that we will be tested and tried because that's what God does. It might hurt a little bit, but you have a community here to support you and to love you, to embrace you and to pray with you and for you and to walk through this with you. As we come to the communion table, would you find your contentment in Christ? Would you find it in the fact that these elements are allowing us to see just how important his sacrifice is? As we prepare our hearts, would we move into a place where we ask the Lord to take over our legalism and that we would turn to the lordship of Christ over our lives and that we would not allow comparison to be the thief of our joy. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening. At Garden City, we believe the gospel has the power to transform lives, including yours. If you want to support our ministry and the message of the gospel, you can donate at gardencitychurch.co forward slash give.